Hey, before we kick off the episode, I'd like to let you know that nothing Sam and I say during our series on investing should be seen as investment advice. Each person has a different financial situation, and what makes sense for Sam or me might not, and probably will not, make sense for you. We are not financial advisors, and you should do your own research before making any investment. Know that all investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, and always remember that if it sounds too good to be true, it is probably not true. Please enjoy the rest of the show. This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative, and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. listener and welcome to the wiser than yesterday podcast my name is nico as usual i'm joined by my good friend and co-host sam and today as part of our series on investing we have just finished the book the psychology of money written by morgan housel and i've actually and i think you too sam yeah. listened to it twice correct i have which might indicate whether this is a good rather good or rather bad book i don't know we'll find out but yeah so um this book Basically, it has 19 chapters that talk about certain topics about money and how people deal with money and how money is this kind of weird thing that people don't think very rationally about. And yeah, it's very interesting. There's lots of great points in there. There's lots of takeaways. But yeah, Sam, what did you think? Yeah, I found it super interesting. I really liked it. I guess the conundrum of is it a great book because we listened twice. I did listened to it and was like i can't remember anything that happened apart from that it was all great and that i like loved every moment of it and then was like i need to listen again so i can actually make notes because of i'll turn up and have nothing <laughs> to say other than it's a great book i love the book yeah. but uh yeah having listened again and made some notes i'm like yeah okay this is a truly epic book i feel like everyone should read it yeah I had the same, so I'm looking at the different chapters, but if you would ask me without looking at them, even if I just prepared them, I wouldn't be able to tell you probably 10, right? So there's a lot of interesting points in there, but there's no real storyline. It's really like separate points. You can read one of them at a time. You can you can jump in between them. That's totally yeah. fine. Anyways, little structure, but great content. Yeah, it's strange how looking at my notes quickly, I see these things and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that really well, but like there's just nothing in my brain <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> And um, yeah, yeah, how hard it is. Exactly. Even though like, he gives some really good examples that seem super memorable as you're going through them. Mm -hmm. It is strange. But I, I just like the whole concept of, well, people just think about money in such different ways and how weird we are, the way we approach it, and um, how many mistakes that we make. And his, he starts with an introduction around there's never going to be like a non-expert be an expert in something like surgery or football or astrophysics. You have to like really spend your life crafting your skills at that and no one can just like walk in in a year and do really well but there's plenty of people who like barely spend that much time thinking about money but outperform financial advisors and it's just like a strange thing that if you have like the right attitude you can just do really well with and it really helped sell the book initially to me being like oh cool i'm gonna be super rich just by like not being very good with things or an expert and stuff mm -hmm. yeah Personal finance is one of the only games where people with no connections or backgrounds can beat people with all the connections mm. and all the backgrounds. That's super interesting as well. It's uh, I hadn't realized it, but it's really true. Yeah. And basically, so your success with money is not decided by what you know. 
or how you think, but how, more how you behave. And it's basically like, can you keep tabs on your emotions going wild? If you can, then you'll do great, I guess. And everyone can do great. Mm. Yes. Although, just to kind of caveat that with a bit of a reverse opinion of, or like, to not get too excited by like how rich you can suddenly make yourself. One of the other key factors around how rich you're going to be is your background. And he makes this great point around if you have a rich and tall brother, you are more likely to be rich than you are to be tall. And if you ask like two rich brothers, they'll attribute all their success to like their personal skills and stuff rather than like their network and how much help they also had from Mm -hmm. everything around them and what they were kind of taught to value and stuff. But that doesn't mean obviously that you can't have the right attitude stuff but like half of it is actually attitude it's not just sort of the initial financial wealth that you start with because plenty of people obviously most people who are like super billionaires their children seem to mess it up as i'm sure we're aware of exactly anyway (laughs) just to start with a good conflicting statement there (laughs) my uh personal favorite yeah Exactly. I try to make a point, and then Sam's like, actually, <laughs> yeah, but actually I, sir. It's literally the point he made in the book. He starts with this thing, and then, like, number two, chapter two is, by the way, <laughs> if you're going to be rich, it's probably because of everyone else that you know is rich. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, because this is, like, one of the points he makes. And, yeah, let's go through. So there's 19 chapters. They each have their merit. I picked out three, and I suggest we keep it at that instead of trying to talk about all 19 because otherwise we'll have like a two-hour long episode um, i'm not sure i'm gonna be able to get past each note on each chapter without mentioning something (laughs) to get to the three sam yes nico (laughs) i'll write it in (laughs) i mean maybe if listeners want it i'll just record another an extra bit by myself or something (laughs) (laughs) sam's notes yeah yeah, accompanying oh i could just publish my notes actually that might be easier let's do that there you go exactly a nice life lesson that he linked to the thing about background, which I think is important, is just not judging people too much because there are plenty of people who do really badly with money or really well with money. And it's not necessarily because they're super intelligent or a brilliant person. It can be like more life circumstances. And there's just lots of stuff that we've learned doing this that we, we weren't aware of. And part of like the whole how to win friends and influence people in general, just being a framework for life is just not to judge people straight away on the surface. So be careful who you praise and admire mm. because someone who's super rich maybe isn't rich because they're super genius and don't aspire to try and get rich the same way they have and don't look down on people and be careful like how much weight you put towards what someone's decisions were um, versus lots of other factors that you don't know about and also the same with yourself. And I think that's like a good life lesson. So I thought I should mention it mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> before it gets missed. And I might have to mention a lot of things before they get missed on the, on the way. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and oh, now we'll start. This one is also a really good <laughs> life lesson. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, that that's one of the points that he makes. And it's basically like the role of luck shouldn't be underestimated yeah. in anything, right? And so one of the mistakes that we as humans make is we attribute all our own successes to us being great yeah. and all our own failures to bad luck. And when someone else is successful, they're lucky and when they fail, it's all their fault. Yeah. And I think turning that around is probably one of the most useful mindsets you have. I learned this personally when I read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm. And so he talks about the locus of control. And so basically, if you have an internal locus of control, whatever happens to you, especially if something bad happens to you, you are going to think, like, what could I have done to avoid this? And so I have friends 
that are the opposite. Whenever something bad happens to them, they like point fingers immediately and they're like blaming yeah. other things and never think like what they could just learn from the experience or what they could have done different. It's, yeah, frustrating <laughs> when talking to the people, but it's, well, I find it mostly amusing these but, days. I mean, and you're like, well, <laughs> if you don't want to learn, then it's not really that useful experience for you yeah. and life. I make it sound like I'm like perfect at that. I'm, I'm oh, definitely no, not. not. Um, if you ask my family, I'm always the one making excuses. But it, it's something to keep in mind and, and something at least I try to work on. And I think it's a very useful skill to have to just get better at stuff. Yeah, 100%. Uh, cool. <laughs> good, more life lessons. This book is more about life lessons, to be fair. But Pretty was much. there a specific area you wanted to jump in on? Because I am really struggling with which is my most favorite. Let's do like point per point. Yeah, sure. So you do one, I do one, and then uh, we, we'll get through it. Like okay, that. so I'm going first. Yes. So one thing I quite liked was all about the psychology of money and thinking about what it is that you're aiming for. And he has this thing called the man in the car paradox, whereby Mm. you see someone with an amazing car and you get envious. You wish you had a similar car so you could be that cool. And yet you're not actually looking at the driver and thinking about how cool they are. You're kind of thinking that they're probably a bit of a dickhead. And you're actually just thinking about yourself and how cool you would be with this amazing car. Except for when you get there, you'll be in the car and everyone will be thinking you're a dickhead and wishing they had that nice car. And they won't be thinking about you or how good or amazing you are. And we want wealth, yet no one actually cares about you having it. And you don't really know what to do with it. And you're probably not going to be super satisfied. So it's it's just a nice paradox to sort of realize the thing you're thinking you're wanting probably isn't actually exactly the same as what you'll get when you get there and to be a bit more grounded in what you're aiming for and like your goals and things and i just quite like that as a silly conundrum Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 100 it made me think of uh and i think this was the book why buddhism is true Mm. is that we are programmed to never have enough right when you're eating food like your body like evolution has taught us to always want more because that's used to be usually a good thing and so basically the hardest financial skill and one of the most important ones is to get the goal post to stop moving. Yeah. And this is actually another point, but I think it's related. It's basically telling you like we are very bad at like getting to enough or deciding that something is enough. And yeah. whenever you taste a little bit more money, a little bit more power, a little bit more status, you'll always want more. And so being like happy with what you have and deciding like I don't need anything else but this you can decide that for yourself you're pretty much already wealthy in a mm. way and it's very important because uh, keeping up with the joneses will keep you always having a goal always feeling desire and as our brilliant friend naval said desire is a contract that you make with yourself to be unhappy until you achieve what you desire yeah definitely there's a, there's a nice story in the one in the book well it mentions like us is the rich country in the world but it's nowhere near the happiest and um it talks about Derek sivers he was asked about a friend asked about how he became rich and he was like okay so i worked in a bar for like one thousand eight hundred dollars a month i managed to save eight hundred dollars a month and by the time i was 22 i had twelve thousand dollars in savings and i quit my job and became a musician and i could you know i could go gig and i'd make enough money to just like exist perpetually with that and i've never worked a day since and i was rich and he's like but how did you become like a millionaire like, how did you get rich rich and he's like no no i was already rich at 22 i was doing what the fuck i wanted mm. and Rich is like a state of mind and living within your means and being happy with that. And you can be rich at 22 with not that much money. Yes. It was a nice story from someone who then became super successful because of he was just doing things he enjoyed for the love of it, yeah. which is cool. Exactly. And I think that ties into one of the other points he makes 
and that is about time and freedom. So the best thing money buys you is freedom. Mm. Because in the end, like if you ask, the happiest people are usually the most free. They're the most in charge of what they do. There's a lot of rich people who have to listen to others who are on a schedule. And because of that, they're actually not really rich. And so um, I'm going to bring up Naval again. So he has another really great quote that we also might discuss in our next book. Mm. Uh, spoiler. Anyway, so don't spend time to save money. Spend money to save time. Yes. That's a quote. And so this is something that I personally still need to learn. Just before we started, Sam and I were laughing about the fact that we are so bad at like wasting money on, on things we don't consider something important. So for example, I'll always buy the cheapest toilet paper and always will try to minimize the amount of toilet paper I use. Mm. And I don't know I know why immediately I'm talking about the toilet paper. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so my point is that I could probably spend like a bit more money because I'm earning more money than I'm um, like burning, basically. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm like cash flow positive. And so it would probably be a good idea for me to think about like where I could spend more money, which save me more time. Mm. And that's something I'm, I haven't really figured out enough. Yeah, I have a um, one give a lovely example from the book that on the we were talking about the freedom section was he talks about the example of investment bankers who just work crazy long hours, that are super controlled. Mm. And like coming home before midnight is like a super luxury. And there was like there was a saying in the office that he worked in where if you don't turn up to work on Saturday, don't bother coming to the office on Sunday. And you're like, oh dear. And he's like, yeah, sure, it's super challenging, intellectually stimulating, pays well, but like, what the hell are you chasing? You aren't your own boss. You're just a complete slave, and you should have the freedom to do things on your own schedule. And um, being able to align money with what you want to do, I think, is super important. And then he said it's something. I've thought about around like where I'm investing my money and what I'm doing with it versus like having a nicer time or paying for like other things that maybe go into what I enjoy more of and saving time. So for example, like I'm putting money into like startups and things because if I just really enjoy doing that and partly because I think they're going to take off and I'll have some more money afterwards and also it's like helps my network and things and it's kind of fun. And then, like, ultimately, so I'd like to be a VC and have a, something like that in the longer run. I know I'd really enjoy that. And so anything that you could do to get to being a VC where you sort of make money fast or something with, like, a huge fund means that you're going to be super stupid rich. So it doesn't really matter how much money I even save that much right now because if I managed to run a fund where I had turned over, like, a billion dollars, I'd have, like, 50 million worth of investments myself that would be going bigger so if i got there like a few years faster that would kind of make sense so maybe i should spend more money on like growing my network and things now so like investing in a flat where i have a spare room and can have like cool people come stay in my flat every other day and like just meet lots of startups and get like really well known and have like deeper relationships with lots of people that have spent some more time with me makes more sense than having a few extra thousand a year to invest in startups perhaps even and trying to think about mm -hmm. ways that you can like be a bit weird but do stuff that like really sort of accelerates where you're trying to get to i think is kind of interesting and not worrying too much about like necessary saving straight away if it gets you to earning a lot more in the future if you're going to enjoy that style of earning money but caveat on that you have no idea what you're going to enjoy in the future what you're going to do because you change so much is another thing that i've been thinking about because yeah stuff that i used to think was super important 10 years ago i don't care about and maybe what i'm chasing and or thinking i'm going to really enjoy soon i might not enjoy and it's hard to predict because of it's very easy to see going backwards what you thought was important and how much you've changed but it's very very difficult looking into the future what you mm -hmm. would change with because you kind of have this like 
linear feeling about yourself going forwards. You feel like, okay, I've arrived. This is now me. This is my life. I'm going to be caring about this stuff. And yeah, you can't <laughs> see the fact that you've been like a bloody weirdo the whole whole time <laughs> in life beforehand. Yeah. So who knows? But think about like how much you changed over the past five years, and imagine that you're going to change the same amount, but you just don't know how. Yeah. In the yeah. Next five years. Pretty mm. much. Yeah, it's a good point. It's an important point of this book as well. Yeah. And one of the points I took away is the point around yeah. compounding. The chief ingredient in the growth of a portfolio is time. Mm. And so as a, as a great example I found is that Warren Buffett, he was only worth $3 billion when he was 65. Yeah. So it's... probably if I'm worth $3 billion when I'm 65, I might, I don't know, go chill on a beach. Yeah. Play some like... I think that's thunk, fine. Yeah. <laughs> become very good at golf. I don't know, maybe. But maybe anyway, if I'm worth like is, 500 million when I'm 60, I might stop, actually. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And so the point is that Warren Buffett is currently worth like, I think more than $100 billion. Yeah. And so almost all of that he actually made after he was 65. And so that's the power of compounding, right? He started with practically nothing. He's seen as the best or the greatest investor of all time. Yeah. But his returns are like stellar, but there are actually people who have better returns. Yeah, yeah. The thing is that one of the most important things in investing is consistency. And so there are people with way higher returns, but if you're not able to sustain it that long, you're never going to be as rich as mm. uh, someone like Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett has annually returned 23%, which is great, but it's the fact that he has spent literally 75 years of investing with that average return, whereas Jim Simons has returned an average of 83%, which is insane. And if Jim had been doing this for 75 years, he would be worth like quintillion, everything. ridiculous, yeah, like everything. more money than like the size of the universe, kind of something. It was such yeah. a stupid number that you like, <laughs> but he didn't do it for 75 years because he's enough money and he started when he was a bit old anyway. And yeah, life is fine. Yeah. So yeah, it does make sense to start investing when you're 20 and like it'll compound forever and like you'll be super rich later but like on the flip side as i was saying like your psychology of things changes so like the amount that money is worth to you when you're 20 i think is much more important versus how much you can earn versus like i was saying as in i've i can leverage my skills and become super good at earning like lots of money in a few years time does it really matter if i have like 10 grand or more in the bank right now this year not so much because 10 grand will mean nothing to me in the same way like when I was a kid, I earned 50p from mowing the lawn and that was like huge. But there's zero point in me saving that 50p because of I wouldn't notice that right now, like at all. Or even when I was 16, I started being paid £5 an hour. But like the idea of like even having 20 grand or something isn't radically going to change my life when I'm trying to start a startup that needs like a million. And sure, I, I can live off 20 grand a year and like I do <laughs> in terms of my actual personal expenses. But it's like it's still not that much money compared to like where things are going so like obsessing about like trying to save that much if it's going to compound but it's not a lot i do think it's worth like working out for yourself and working out what other things would be compounding besides money if you were spending it on like other useful stuff in your 20s like going traveling and mm -hmm. enjoying your life a little bit getting a diverse set of experiences versus like just working mm -hmm. as he also mentions don't work just for money purely so it's uh some things to juggle in your own mind and what things bring you joy and stuff. But compounding mm -hmm. obviously only works if you let it compound. Yeah. And avoid stopping the compounding at all costs. Yes. It's interesting because I took away something slightly different from this point. So 
I'm working in the crypto space mm. and I have a lot of friends who are interested in the crypto space and almost every single one of them doing like crazy short-term like flipping yeah. NFTs, you know, trying to be in the head of the next pump and dump and trying to go for the, looking for the 1000X. That's what they're doing. And so what I take away is after reading this book and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot is good investing is not about getting very high re returns. Yeah. Because that's not replicable over many years. Yeah. Good investing is about getting decent enough returns over decades. And so basically I've started making the, like my mental time shift. And now, so the way I explain this is I'm investing for my grandchildren. That's how I look at it. And if you, in your head, make investments decisions based on what those mean for your grandchildren with that kind of time perspective, I think you're less likely going to jump on these, you know, short-term opportunities, which on average actually are zero-sum games and, and mm. don't bring you a lot of profits or gains anyway, and are more likely to select like good long-term investments that um, are not, or have a lower chance of going bankrupt, right? So yeah, that's what I took away. Yeah, which I certainly agree that goes in with the intelligent investor around like you shouldn't buy a stock if you don't want to hold it for like three years and i think it was this book where he talks about the price of admission that i really liked oh i love that one yeah let's talk about that yeah that was a good one you want to go or uh sure so as in like as you're saying then people with a short-term mindset are trying to get like short-term gains and things well often people think they are a long-term investor and they're like cool i'm buying the stock i think it's going to be worth this much but they see it starting to go down and then they sell it because they think it's going to go down further and they can buy it low or something in these things and they're not willing to accept the fact that like the market is volatile they bought a stock that they know is going to be worth more in five years time at whatever price they thought was a good price and it starts going down they're like they don't sort of have the price of admission that like it's a volatile market so it's always going to go up and down and you just have to like ride out the parts when it goes down to be able to then sell it at the higher price and just be a lot more patient and I think that's a really important thing for especially people who are sort of, it's like you can't time the market. Like right now, cryptocurrencies, it could like halve, it could go down to like 10% of where it's currently at. If you still believe Bitcoin's going to a million, it shouldn't matter to you if you've bought some and you're never going to know how much it is going to go down or if it goes down at all. This might be the lowest point in time ever for the rest of history. And like the point is like, hey, just buy some consistently or whatever and just don't touch it and leave it if you believe that it's going to go up in the long run. If you just don't have any faith in cryptocurrencies in the long run and you just think that because it's volatile you can trade, that means that you're a trader. But lots of people think that they're the long-term person, but they then have the short-term mindset when as soon as their money's on the line. And then they, because they have two conflicting strategies going on, they fuck it up. And because you don't think that, okay, I'm going to be a great trader and try to beat the market, but then you actually end up doing it by accident. And that's where loads of people then just lose lots of money. Mm -hmm. And his frame of thinking around this is, I found super interesting. So basically he says that market downturns or reductions in price, people look at it as a fine, mm. a fine that you get for doing something wrong. And he says, no, market downturns are not a fine. They're a fee, they're yeah, an yeah. admission fee. So basically if you are investing, let's say in the general stock market, there are going to be bubbles. There are going to be downturns. But these are just a fee that you have to pay. And the moment you invest, you should mentally agree or accept that these are the fees you pay. They're like an admission fee yeah. instead of a fine. And this was so brilliant. Like, I love that example. 
because I'm always like thinking like, okay, what if things go down, you mm. know? And if you just think of them, like that is the fee for having or holding this asset. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, if you have the long-term mindset and believe that the long-term price is, or the long-term value will only increase, then um, you're still doing a great deal. Yeah, which is great. And uh, thanks for explaining that way better than me. Um, <laughs> I guess I gave some stuff to think about going into Nico's actual sound. explanation of what I was supposed to say. There's a similar framework to relationships as in the price of admission because of you're probably never going to find someone that's perfect and there's going to be some things that annoy you like they might be a bit messier than you and like not get around to cleaning the dishes or vice versa or whatever and you can think of it as like an annoyance to this person that you need to change them and this is like a problem or you can think of it as a fee like there isn't going to be a perfect person this is the thing that's a bit of a qualm on them but like if you can just like suck it and be like hey okay the dishes that's like the thing that I have to do each day and that's part of like our love then like that's just the thing that you can show up and do every day and be happy about and even be like cool i'm doing the dishes again but i have to have this awesome relationship with this person that's perfect in every other way apart from the small mild thing that actually isn't annoying because of i do dishes anyway so it's fine and if you can start learning about those things as fees it sort of becomes a lot easier rather than like being like shit panic this person's not perfect for me i guess this isn't going to work out and like having arguments and stuff and just sort of having that kind of free framework the framework for certain things makes you a bit more chilled out and a happier person and able to be a bit more long-term mindset and invest in things in the correct ways which is good for money and relationships and maybe other stuff but uh, for now we'll just go with that tangent and back to psychology of money <laughs> so money equals relationships you heard it here first yeah <laughs> that makes sense all right so one other point i found interesting and, and which is specifically important to my job and that is that's Long tails have the most impact, basically. And so what that means is that, especially in investing and in, like in picking companies, like, for example, Warren Buffett. Buffett has owned 400 to 500 stocks in his lifetime, and he has made most of his money in, at most, 10 stocks. The rest was just average. And so basically, this means that you can, let's say, only pick a winner in investing 50% of the time and still be an incredibly successful investor because it is important that if you're right, you're very right. And so I think that was one major investor. Uh, I think it's George Soros who said that. We basically said like, it's more important. Like it's okay that if you lose, like if you're wrong, you're very wrong. That's fine. As long as you make sure that you're, but their downside is limited. So let's say you do investments of 10 grand. Mm. Make sure that if you're wrong, you only lose 10 grand. But if you're right, you make it a thousand X. So you make 10 million on that. Um, and so basically these are things that actually are very important in investing and, and actually have the most impact. Yeah. And I think when you're not too sure if you sort of set like take profits, you can often take profit like way too early on things that become much bigger. If so I think it's going to drive most of your returns or something like a thousand X is if you sort of try and take the profit too quickly, you you're never going to have the opportunity for that and you're going to get hit by more of the losses and it's going to feel more pain, which um, when you're being a bit more short-term mindset is harder to deal with properly. But yeah, I like that point. Thanks. I don't know what you want to talk about next, but I really like his explanation of how market bubbles happen. I thought it was great. I also really liked his explanation of like what game you're playing and how different people are playing different games. And that's kind of links into the same thing. Mm -hmm. So can I explain that? So go ahead, do it. Bubbles is a, explains that they are quite hard to learn from and it's hard to really diagnose everything. But basically no one wants to think they're buying an overvalued 
asset as they're buying it, but investors are all playing a slightly different game and they take cues from other people who are investing who they assume maybe are investing for the right reasons, but actually they're playing a different game to them. And we think an asset has a rational price and that's the price it should be at. But when you're playing different games, it's not correct. So if I'm investing for my grandkids and stuff, I'm investing over 30 years, the income relation to that asset doesn't, uh, is like kind of important. And I should sort of be Googling like their discounted cash flows and these kind of things. And that's like one way for me to value that investment. But if I'm investing over 10 years, like in a tech company or something, I need to sort of just check a bit more like what the tech industry is doing and think about what the management's doing and how it's going to perform. If I'm investing over one year, I need to think a bit more like, are we in a bull cycle right now? Is there a crash coming? And I need to like look at sales cycles. Or if I'm a day trader, like the price doesn't even matter at all. Like I'm just thinking, is it going to go up in the next five minutes or like down? And these are like very different ways to value an asset, which makes a big difference to what I'm then going to invest in. But when something starts to go up and people start investing in it because it's consistently going up, more of the shorter term people start investing in it. And people who see this thing going up, who have like the long term horizon, think it's going to carry on going up as well. And it stuff starts becoming into a bubble because of everyone just thinks it's going to go up and up because of it's just being silly. And that's kind of what then happened with like the house prices crash, for example, is that like people who are flipping homes, it didn't really matter to them. So they could still like carry the weight of it being completely irrational. But that means that the people that were investing in it also had to sort of buy a home because they're still just going up. And they're like, well, the market's going up. And so like, I still need to buy my house before it gets even more higher next year. And I'm not going to be able to afford a house next year. So I have to buy now whilst it's already too high. And then you just get to the point where house prices are completely ridiculous and not relating at all to the actual value they're providing. And then there's a crash and stuff. And this happens with quite a few different areas. And I don't know if there's anything else in that that you thought was interesting, but I found as a general rule, it was Mm -hmm. like, it kind of made a bit of sense at least to how to think of bubbles and to when to check yourself. And so what I also learned from this is pretty much what I described earlier. I'm surrounded, but maybe surrounded is too big of a word, but I know a lot of people who are you know, trading mm. and I get sucked into that. You know, I see people like, oh yeah, I just 3x leveraged long for a week on this thing after this news hit. And, you know, I made 50 times my money on the, let's say a $500 trade. And I'm like, oh man, that sounds like cool and interesting and easy. But like a lot of the people I'm, I'm now talking to, like, they cannot yet stop working and just like they don't have um, as much. Um, how do you explain this? Security. They haven't made it, right? Well, yeah. So basically, they still need to make it in crypto, and for them, they need to find like a good, you know, one hundred x to make their first big bag, and from which point they can start chilling. I've yeah. been in the crypto space for a bit of a like a longer while. I've always been buying very religiously because I really believed in it. And now these investments have gotten to a number where I don't need to stress or take any risks. Like I'm going to be fine whatever happens. If there's a market downturn, I'll weather it. It's going to be fine. Like I have a long-term mindset. I'm well diversified, so I don't need to play their games. And so basically, like people play different games and just realize what game you're playing because no one's playing a wrong game like in itself, right? It's just we all have different situations and that's just important to keep in mind. And this makes it easier for me to just say, okay, I'm not touching leverage. I'm not doing these short-term trades. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And sort of like if this is 1999 and you're looking at Yahoo, if you're a short-term trader, you can definitely invest. It's like it was ridiculously overvalued, but it has a lot of momentum which attracts short-term investors and that's fine. But 
if you're like a long-term trader, you do need to sort of work out like, is it just market momentum that's driving it up that's not actually going to perform for your long-term investment? And yes, when things mm-hmm. are at the top of the charts, mm-hmm. it's usually not the best sign. And people are always like, oh, it's different, but usually it's kind of not. And um, yeah, it's just worth checking yourself and working out what strategy it definitely is that you're buying into or not so that you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, 100%. there is perfectly good ways to be a short-term trader and a long-term trader just to make sure you're doing the one that you're supposed to be doing at the same at the right time okay so sam i'm going to say something now so i think trading like day trading for me is a zero-sum game yeah which means that if you make money during day trading someone else loses money during day trading and that's why i'm like fundamentally against it and that's why i tell you listener if you're a day trader i'm going to give you advice i'm going to say like you're going to be better off if you Stop day trading and just invest in long-term deals because you're going to be better off in the long term. I've said it, and this is my opinion. This does not come from the book. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think, especially gambling, and there's going to be lots of people that lose and people that win, and you're probably not going to do a good job of it. And yeah, sure. Yeah. In the long run. No, I mean, actually what you're saying, day trading is actually basically gambling because yeah, it's... it's just- it's even worse than a zero-sum game. Yeah. It's like the casino is always winning and that is the, the trading platform. You're always paying fees. Yeah, yeah. So avoid that shit. Just buy things you believe in in the long term and hold. Not financial advice. Yeah. We're not financial advisors. Yeah. 100%. Did you, there's this really uh, cool uh, YouTube video of a guy who's like a Twitch streamer. He built this trading bot that would allow any of his Twitch followers to make a trade for him. And um, he put it live and then you can see all these people making these trades and you can just see his money that was kind of flat, just going like cliff, <laughs> just going down and see people oh, start doing because he's, he's paying like the small fee each time someone makes a trade and like all profits get completely annihilated by the fact that he's just paying fees oh. on each trade that's going through. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's just like, it's just this hilarious like cliff drop in his money <laughs> while it trades for half an hour right. and he has to cancel it. It's like, well, that was that. Um, good. Thanks guys. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So they're very smart. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job. And I mean, he what, made um, his money back in terms of just making a great video about it and it's gone. Really exactly. Big, but... Exactly. Exactly. One last point that I wanted to raise was the difference between rational and reasonable, mm. which is like, gave a great example for that. So basically uh, a bunch of researchers found that if you're young, the best or most rational investment strategy you can follow is to take a 2x long, which means that you borrow for every dollar investment in the stock market, you borrow another dollar so you can invest $2, basically. Mm. But that means if the stock market declines for more than 50% in a short time, you actually lose everything. Yeah. And so he says, like, the most rational thing you can do is 2x long. And if, let's say, there's a downturn, you lose all your money, you just keep continue, like, dollar cost averaging every month, you invest a certain amount, but it always, like, leveraged 2x. And so he says, like, this is the, like, irrational way to invest. But it's not a reasonable way to invest because if you're investing like all your savings and suddenly the market goes down by more than 50% and you lose everything, like who's going to still be able to keep and stick to that same strategy? It's completely unreasonable. And that's why he says like there's a lot of rational things to do. As an example, another example. So I could theoretically now take a mortgage on my apartment, on my home where I live in Mm. and use that to because I believe that I, I'll do better investing, like the interest rates are super low. So that would be the rational thing to do. But I don't want to take on debt for anything. And so that's why I don't want to do it. And this book <laughs> made me feel better about my non-willingness to be fully rational and uh, optimize yeah. everything around Yeah, he says, like, specifically, 
there are sensible things he could do with his money in terms of he'd probably have more money and stuff but it's like it's just not worth the stress and the point of money is to give you more freedom from things like stress mm-hmm. and whatever it is you want to do and time which if you're spending a bit more time worrying about things it's not useful so yeah i totally agree with that but on the flip side it might be less stress for you to take a mortgage in a different scenario say whereby like you haven't got much cash but you could have like an easier life if you do have a good job and you want to have more money around that you can actually spend on having more time and freedom and doing stuff that's more useful for you for example uh perhaps that's fair yep. which is more what i'm doing right now <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, i have not, not much cash but i technically have been making great investments and it was nice to actually spend some money on myself before said investments return themselves and things yeah so yeah for sure and i i was actually thinking exactly about that 2x longer i hadn't actually heard that somewhere but i was thinking around like a framework for doing that of like if you reach a point where you don't think bitcoin's going to half again it's sort of worth doing a 2x long but maybe not with but with like sort of half the money that you would be investing and put something else somewhere like secure and then if it does drop around you can kind of like do it again but like cycle it to the point where like you always end up like making more from it and i was trying to work out the math exactly okay, so I'm, but i can't be I'm asked to tell you a little story don't worry <laughs> i'm gonna tell you a little story so yesterday i called a friend of mine yeah um and he had the strategy where he would he would do a 3x long on so it three times leveraged long on bitcoin yeah but he was also covering the downside yeah, yeah. with like options and so that was like a very very safe strategy but there was one thing, like one little tiny detail that he didn't fully understand. And so last Friday, he got fully liquidated. And so he lost 60K, 60K Jeez. of his hard-earned money. And that's not magic internet Bitcoin money. Yeah, right? yeah. That's money that he earned while working, which is not my, like my, I play with internet money because I made that by, you know, yeah, the, yeah. buying early. Yeah, that's but, so, but like, if, if you work for that shit. Definitely not playing with money that I've invested, but like with the stuff that has like come into being of value from the internet it's like is there a way that you can kind of back it in a way that you won't get liquidated unless you're then making another trade that will then make that one back or something but i haven't been too obsessed about it to work it out but at some point if i'm bored of the whole days i'll i'll do some maths don't do it sam (laughs) stay away from leverage no 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 the getting wealthy versus staying wealthy i thought that was important in terms of like goes into what you're just saying is in like making money does require risk taking and like when you're younger you probably should be making more risks to get to the point of being richer Hmm. but keeping money is the opposite and it is about being safer with your assets and making sure that you aren't really doing anything stupid and um if you look at like the top 100 list of companies it's got like 40 percent of turnover a decade because they've all lost their value and the same as like the forbes rich list has like a 20 percent turnover each decade that's after you've accounted for people dying or giving the money away and stuff and people aren't that great at staying rich especially if they're using the same strategy that you used to get rich and yeah just important to consider i guess i don't know if you had any further points but that's basically like expansion on your last point in the first place i guess yeah yeah no i agree cool again it's like a culmination of a bunch of points where like different stages in life require different mindsets, I guess. And if you're young and you're not rich yet, it's worth like taking calculated risks. And again, try to make sure those risks have like exponential upsides, you know, long tail events. Mm. Go work at a, at a like a startup and try and, and keep your costs down when you're young. So you can invest in startups perhaps or in things you're interested in or passionate about. But then when you're older, it's going to be like diversifying and being paranoid. That's what keeps you rich. Yeah. Basically. So yeah, 
I've talked about all my points. If you're done too, then uh, let's yeah, yes. let's yeah, wrap it up. Give it a rating. It's great. I giving it a solid nine out of ten, despite the fact. Well, like I said, and I kind of did need to read it twice and make notes. And still, when someone asks me about it, I'm still like a bit of a few things. But going through that, then I realized that quite a few things I have been telling people in general were the things from the book, but I couldn't quite remember that they were from the book. Interestingly, mm. but it's, so it's definitely like in my brain um in some ways just uh not always sure that it's from that book but i guess i've been reading so many other things from money and like other blogs that kind of relate into this it has got a bit more confusing yeah. yeah i i feel like money is an important part it's part of everyone's life you don't get away from money and your psychology and your nature of your psychology so i think this is so far probably the best book out of the ones we've read to think about as an overall Interesting. um so yeah i'm gonna yeah. go with nine no i think yeah, okay, very fair. And I actually agree. I've, I've already recommended this book to a bunch of friends because I think it, it's absolutely fantastic. It's a really good book. Also for everyone to read, mm. right? This is this is not really a book on investing, right? But yeah, this is yeah. someone this is a book that like everyone would probably like have good value from. Get something. From. All of the other books are very niche are about investing. Yeah. Some people like might not want to, you know, do investing themselves. They might want to like just passively, you know, invest in ETFs or trackers yeah, and stuff yeah, like that's... that easier things and like sure like the bitcoin one like i feel like everyone should read it in terms of like a, if it is part of the future you should sort of work out what it is and most people mm. haven't invested because they don't understand it and like if you understood it better you'd be able to make that bet and it teaches you about the history of money and it's like it's great but actually lots of people just aren't going to read that book mm -hmm. whereas i think this is a book that like okay everyone has money everyone like thinks about it differently and it's just a great way to sort of look at your life a bit more holistically and sort of think about which part you're in, which game you're playing and what's going on and understand what other people are doing. And yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So I'll give it a, I'll give it a nine as well. Ooh. <laughs> well, Morgan Hazel. Great book. <laughs> He's, uh, yeah, good job. Good job, sir. Yeah. You did a good job. Um, and I believe he, this is actually the culmination of a bunch of blog posts about the psychology of money so you might be able to if you haven't read the book or listened to it you might be able to just find all of this stuff online definitely recommend it so uh give it a listen so yeah next week we are covering our good friend naval so the naval manac or the almanac by naval ravikant i consider naval the wisest person i know I think, yeah, or at least insane. in my top three to five. Yeah, he's freaking awesome. He's brilliant. I've probably listened to all of his content, like all of his podcast appearances, or, or close to. And every time he's on, he's like, I'm like, oh, this guy. Yeah, I want to know more. Yeah, I want to have his brain. Thing that comes out, I'm like, what's he thinking about now? Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, yes. it's insane. So anyway, uh, Naval, highly recommend that dude. Anyway, so we listening um, to Naval Manak, and yeah, we'll let you know next week or whenever we we upload how that was. So with that, this was uh, the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. If you enjoyed, please let us know. And uh, with that, we're out. And we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating and share with your friends. If you'd like to ask us a question or give us a comment, feel free to join us on Reason. Reason is Sam's startup that is building a social podcasting app. It is a place where Sam and I listen to podcasts and share ideas and insights. It'd be great if you would hang out with us there. Thanks again and speak to you in the next episode. Cheers.